Good morning. We good? <laughs> Are we good? Okay. It's good to see your faces this morning. Um, as you may or may not be aware, we're gonna we're gonna be starting um, a series here. We're gonna be walking through First and Second Thessalonians, um, which, as Matt mentioned, that'll be right in tandem with our with our Bible reading plan. Um, and so I'm excited for that. I don't know about you. This is not a place that I have spent much time uh, in the Word. I've, I've read through it, but had not spent much time in, uh, in study of it. And so um, these last couple weeks have been, been really good and, and encouraging to me in that regard. Um, and I hope that you find this the same uh, true for you here. Um, and so if you would turn over there, First Thessalonians chapter 1 is where we'll be this morning. And I'm just going to read the text here, starting in, in verse 1 there. We'll read the whole chapter this morning. It reads like this, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We always thank God for all of you, making mention of you constantly in our prayers. We recall in the presence of our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor motivated by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full assurance. You know how we lived among you, for your benefit, and you yourselves became imitators of us and of the Lord when, in spite of severe persecution, you welcomed the message with joy from the Holy Spirit. As a result, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the, Lord, the word of the Lord rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place that your faith in God has gone out. Therefore, we don't need to say anything, for they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Um, this, is, this is part of a, uh, an essay of reflection. It was written on J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, you may or may not be familiar with that name, and his well-known story, The Lord of the Rings. Uh, it talks about the reality of life, which Tolkien refers to as the long defeat. That's how he describes life. It's beautiful because it, it helps bring out some of the parallels between uh, the world at Middle Earth in this story and, and the realities of the world that we live in. Here's just, just part of that reflection. He writes, It has been said that J.R.R. Tolkien did not create Middle-earth, but discovered it. Certainly for those of us to whom Tolkien has extended an invitation, who have feasted in the Shire and climbed the misty mountains, our memories have the echo of that truth. And in every folded quarter and, and smeared ink spot, we find the long defeat being fought. Elven maids, they fall in love with humans at the cost of their immortality. Hobbits spare their tormentors out of a, a simple sense of mercy. 
and men march into war as a sacrificial decoy. Time and time again, our heroes come face to face with what Tolkien calls hope without guarantees. Tolkien made his stand against the spirit of the age, not through self-righteous diatribes, but through story after grand story of his characters living in testimony to inherent goodness. His characters consistently make potentially catastrophic decisions simply because they believe it's the right thing to do. The phrase itself, we have fought the long defeat, it, it can seem fatalistic or pessimistic, more akin to a libertarian bumper sticker than a life-guiding principle. And certainly Tolkien, who is orphaned as a child and lost many of his good friends in World War I, he had some pessimistic tendencies and meant this phrase on the largest possible scale. The further one heads down the Middle Earth timeline, the less happy it becomes. Middle Earth is a world in decline. Now, whether or not we think that our world is in decline is up to each one of us. But, but in application, we see this life principle guarded against pessimism by love and by hope. Fighting the long defeat is not meant to protect our hearts from suffering or lead to resignation. If anything, we find that most of the characters in The Lord of the Rings, they cast their, their whole hearts into their endeavors. What they love is on the line. Their friends and family, their gardens, a mug of ale in the company of friends, they hope and long for these things to be protected, and they offer themselves as sacrifices to make it so. In other words, if fighting the long defeat does not lead us to risk our reputations to love the outcasts, to stay with the chronically ill in love, to support ministry to those with Alzheimer's disease, or prepare week in and week out for a, for a one-person Bible study, we've misunderstood it. This is what we have to offer the world, is it not? A love unrestrained by success or timetables or ambitions. Many of Tolkien's characters, they, they, they do die, sometimes alone. But their life is the sacrifice that they lay down for the things that they love and the people that they delighted. This is the long defeat that we all, as fallen humans, will, will inevitably face. It's our death. But there's one final truth that balances our, our application of this idea, and it comes from Tolkien himself. I am a Christian, he writes in one of his letters. So I do not expect history to be anything but a long defeat, though it does contain some samples or glimpses of final victory. Despite the years of faithful work, J.R.R. and Edith Tolkien, they have their names on two tombstones, side by side. But one can't help but wonder that the moments they shared together in life, their wedding day and their first child, their mercy to others, or maybe simply the daily comfort of tea, were glimpses of that final victory. And when Jesus comes to usher in the next age and New Jerusalem descends to earth, and we'll find both of them there together, faithful to the last, experiencing the fruit of the one hope that was always guaranteed, God's reign on earth. We fight the long defeat now because results are not as important as our Father's delight. 
We fight the long defeat because we are not authorities over success. We fight the long defeat because the final victory is coming. Now, I know that if you're not familiar with Tolkien uh, or, or his story in The Lord of the Rings, um, some of that may be lost on you, but, but it's, it's really a beautiful article and, and well-written. And regardless of your uh, maybe familiarity with the details, what I hoped you picked up on was this theme that although life is characterized as this long defeat, there is this prevailing notion of faith and of love and of hope. Uh, Middle Earth was not a place that was set up in a way uh, that was conducive to the success of its characters, right? <laughs> but time after time, Tolkien portrays these characters as doing what they're convicted is right, even to their own detriment, even to the point of death. In the midst of a world that would move against their acts of faithfulness, they, they pressed on. They pressed on in love. They pressed on in faithfulness to their conviction. Why? Because they knew the victory was coming. They kept their eyes ahead, looking forward to the day that it would come. And so in this sense, I think that these, these beautiful stories that Tolkien has written and, and the characters in them and the drama that unfolds, it's an encouragement to us all to fight the long defeat of life and keep looking ahead to the day of victory. Maybe this depiction of life resonates with you this morning. I know it does with me. No matter what it is, maybe life is just, just hard. Maybe it feels like this life is just constantly weighing you down. And if that's you this morning, what I want you to see is that there's, there's hope. There's a way through the long, slow defeat of life. What we're going to see in Thessalonians this morning, it's a, it's a people who are living in the long defeat of life. They're living in a world that, that is uh, very much working against everything that they are convicted by and, and who, the, who it is they're allegiant to. And here's what I want you to see this morning. It's that despite the pains of life, we have the blueprint for faithfulness. Amen? We have the blueprint. We have a way forward. What we'll see, I think, is that it's given to us this morning and from, I think, the book as a whole in three main things. Faith, love, and hope. How do you make it through the long defeat of life? What does faithfulness look like in a world that is completely opposed to everything I'm supposed to be about? Faith, love, and hope. That's what I want you to see this morning. We're going to talk mainly about these three things and, and how they kind of relate to one another and how they give us a way forward in this life that often feels like it's working in the opposite direction of where we want to go. And so let me just pray before we jump into the text and then we'll, we'll get going here. Father, we thank you uh, for your word. We come before you humbly as frail and, and broken beings. Lord, we believe that ultimately your will and your, uh, your glory is achieved through your word going out with your spirit and in power and the full assurance that comes with that. And so we just lean into that this morning, Lord. Help us to trust that. And God, as we sang this morning, as we maybe look through the flames of life, <laughs> help us to see you there. Help us to find hope there. Help us to find endurance to keep going. Lord, we ask for that this morning. We ask that you would give that to us through your word. 
We pray these things in your name. Amen. Uh, it'd be helpful to start, I think, by just, uh, before we get into chapter 1 here, briefly kind of addressing what we know uh, contextually about the church in, in Thessalonica. Um, we have mention of this, of Paul's visit to this church over in Acts 17. You don't have to jump back there, but if you, if you want to just go glance there. Um, we get this brief glimpse of kind of some of the dynamics and background information behind this letter that we're, that we're about to go through to them. I'll be at the beginning of Acts 17 there, verses 1 through 9. Um, Luke tells the story of Paul's ministry there. And, and he says that, um, that they, this would be Paul and Silas here, they, they went to Thessalonica and they roll up on a Jewish synagogue, right? This is kind of standard practice for Paul. It says, uh, as usual, I think is the wording there, Paul found the synagogue. And, and so he goes there, and what we see Paul doing is he's, he's explaining to them from the Scriptures that the Messiah, he had to die and he had to rise again. That's what he's showing them. And, and his work there is all to validate this claim that Jesus is that Messiah. Okay? So he's saying Jesus is the Messiah, and, and he is this Messiah who had to die and rise again. But then we see uh, some of the drama that starts to unfold because there are Jews there that are unhappy with this teaching. And specifically what they're unhappy about, it's, it's uh, his preaching against Caesar. They say he's preaching that there's another king, Jesus. And so the Jews, they kind of start to stir up the crowd, and then uh, we see once it's, it's night, Paul and Silas, they're sent off to Berea. So it's this really short-lived visit to Thessalonica. It says three Sabbath days they spent there. And you can see while, while some of them are saved, they do believe, both Jew and Greek, it's, it's a hostile environment, right? It's a hostile place to be. We talked about this idea of the long defeat of life and how the Thessalonians, they were very much living in that. And these details just help fill that in a little bit. They give us a picture of what that looked like. And so we know they're not in a place that is overall receptive to the gospel. This helps explain some of the dynamics that Paul is going to allude to in his letter that we're starting to walk through this morning. But as we get into 1 Thessalonians, the three things that I really want to highlight in chapter 1 are, are, are those three ideas. The three ideas of faith, hope, and love. They're the main patterns, I think, of faithfulness that are, that are given here through the uphill battles of life. But I just want to quickly show from, from the structure of the book um, why these seem to be the most important ideas to talk about here in chapter 1. I think we see the prominence of these ideas most easily from just the overall structure of the book and that there are, there are three main prayers throughout the letter. So if you read, read through, you'll see one of those. The first one is in our, our text this morning, chapter 1. This will be verses 1 to 5. And then we see another one in chapter 3, verses 11 to 13 there, end of chapter 3. And then at the end of the book as a whole, chapter 5, verses 23 to 28. In all three of these prayers, we have some sort of mention of these ideas. And so these prayers, they're somewhat programmatic for the, the whole letter, and they kind of serve as just an indication of what Paul really thinks is important here. The prayer in chapter 1, it's sort of... Um, more introductory. Paul's praising them for what the Lord is doing in and through them in their church. That's what we'll see this morning. That prayer in chapter 3, it's more transitional, and so it kind of moves us from the strong encouragement part of the letter to the, the charge to, um, in a lot of ways, just continue in what they're already doing, continue on in that with, with some more detail, and, and he kind of loses some specific temptations they might face. And then the prayer in chapter 5, it's the conclusion of the, the letter where he ends on this 
strong note once again of looking forward to Christ's return. And so we can see clearly from these three strategic prayers in, in, in 1 Thessalonians that these are, these are the main themes that run throughout the book. But it's also noteworthy that these, these three things are not new to 1 Thessalonians, right? Paul has often put these three things next to each other, or, or oftentimes at least two of them. Uh, Colossians 1 would be an example where very similarly, in almost identical language, he thanks God for the faith, hope, and love that, that the church possesses. Uh, Philemon, in verses 4 and 5 there, Paul commends him for his faith and his love. At the end of 1 Corinthians 13, you'll remember, Paul, he mentions a set of gifts that are going to, at some point, they're going to go away. But he says these gifts remain. Faith, hope, and love. <laughs> and so you can see in many other places in Paul's writings, these three ideas uh, presented together. But, but it's just helpful to note that because, again, it helps show us what's important to Paul in his letter. So these things are going to be the, the common theme, uh, themes that show up throughout the book at strategic points that we can kind of use as a bearing to understand the rest of what he's saying. And so let's, let's do just that. Let's jump into 1 Thessalonians 1 here and just see how these three things, they help us in our faithfulness in the long defeat of life in this world. The first thing that we're given for, for the long defeat is our work of faith. How do you press on in the midst of the long defeat? by the work of your faith. Work of faith. What does that mean, work of faith? Well, it's not, it's not the work for faith. He doesn't say the work to faith. It's the work of faith. Their work of faith. Theologically, we, we'd say it like this. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. That's a common phrase used to just communicate this reality that while you're, you're not in any way saved by uh, by work or a mindset of working and doing, once you are brought to faith, you will also be brought into a life of good works. That faith that saves, it, it brings you into God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's Paul, what he says there in verse 1 here. And, and since you're in Christ, you're now found in God. <laughs> you have a brand new life, a brand new reality, completely new. And that new reality brings a lot of a lot of good things with it that were not there before. But Christian, notice some of the subtle dynamics here of, of who's, who's being thanked for this and who it's being attributed to. Because I, I think the danger here would just be um, to, to read this carelessly and see Paul commending them for the work. And so we leave here simply thinking, well, I'm, I'm going to be like those Thessalonians and work more. <laughs> I'm going to be like them and I'm going I'm to work harder. Paul was pleased with them for their work, so let me go do some of that working stuff so that Paul can be happy with me too. That's what we think. There's much more to it than that. Look there in verse 2. Paul, um, before he brings up the things that he's thankful for, who does he thank for them? He says, we always thank God for all of you remembering you constantly in our prayers. And so he's, he's, he's thanking God, but it's not God's work of faith that he's thanking for. No, we thank God for all of you. And then in verse 3, we recall in the presence of God, your, the Thessalonians there, your work of faith, labor of love, and endurance of hope in Christ. 
And so he, he's thanking God for their work of faith. How does that make sense? <laughs> what does God have to do with this if it's their work of faith? Is it really theirs? Is it God's? What's going on here? And if that's, just, that's, that's you this morning asking the question of, of, is the work of my faith my work or God's work, I would, one, just say good question and then be very tempted to just say yes and, and leave it there, right? Just move on. <laughs> this is one of the great mysteries of the Christian life. Is it my work or is it God's work? Who, who makes it happen and how does that work? The answer really is, in some sense, just yes, because Paul seems to be uh, over and over again, repeatedly, perfectly content to just put these two seemingly contradictory statements side by side and offer no explanation whatsoever as to the details of how they can both be true. My son, um, he's, he's about two and a half now. He turned two in April. Um, he's at a really fun, uh, fun, fun age. He's just starting to put a lot of stuff together. He's learning a ton, um, which is... It is fun. It's kind of scary, but it is fun. Um, but, but he loves ball. That's kind of his thing, right? And so uh, he, he's a very visual learner. So whatever is on the TV most during that time of the year, that's what he's into. <laughs> and so now we're, you know, spring, summer season. It's been all baseball. That's what we're watching on TV. Baseball's on. Um, and so he, he watches the TV and he sees these guys and, and then he wants to um, throw and hit himself, right? He wants to do it all. Uh, but as a two-year-old who wants to do it all, he struggled to hit a moving pitch. <laughs> Understandably. <laughs> and so this is what we do. His dada would come up behind him. I'd, I'd put the bat in his hands. I'd show him where his hands go. I'd, I'd help turn his body the right way, right? And his mama would be a few feet away. She'd throw him a nice, easy, soft toss, Right? And I'd stand there behind him, holding my hands over his hands. And when the ball got to that right spot, we'd, we'd make the swing. Perfect swing. Boom. Home run, right? Crowd goes wild. He'd run around the bases. It was great. And, and here's the thing. My son, in his little two-year-old mind, was doing everything. <laughs> yes, he's following my direction, but it's, it's him standing there. He's looking at the pitch. His eyes are watching it. The ball gets thrown to him. His arms swing. His bat hits the ball, and the ball goes flying from there. But for anyone watching outside of Calvin's mind, they can see the ball. Yes, it's his hands on the bat, and it's his body moving to hit the ball. It's really his daddy (laughs) standing right behind him, making it all happen. It's a very imperfect illustration, I understand that, but I think it's somewhat analogous to how our works are played out in this relationship between it being our work but God's work. From our perspective, yes, of course, of course, we have the choice to obey or not obey, to do good or not, to believe or not believe. But friends, when we step back and we, and we look at the grand storyline and message of the Bible, it is clear that it's God's work in us that makes that happen. That it's God's sovereign work that he has is, he is ordained and set apart for us. That we, we simply walk in by his grace and spirit and their power. Yes, we, we do it. But he does it in us and through us. 
This is why Paul can say to the church in, in Philippi, to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out. You do it. But in the very next breath, say, for it is God who is working in you, enabling you both to desire and to work out his good purpose. This is why in Ephesians 2, he can talk about how we were, we were used to be dead in our trespasses and sins, which we formerly walked in. But then shortly later say that now, since we are a new creation in Christ Jesus, we walk in the good works which God prepared for us ahead of time in Christ. And friends, don't, don't miss this simple truth, this idea that we're wrestling with here. It's just the gospel. <laughs> Salvation is of the Lord on that side and on this side. That's what we're saying. The same gospel that we believed and came to faith by applied to our already not yet situation on this side of salvation. Verse 4 and 5 of our text, look down there. After thanking God for their work and love and hope, he writes, Knowing your election, brothers, loved by God, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with much assurance. The same way that he changed our life then, he continues to do so now. It's the power of the gospel going out. It's the word of God going out repeatedly with the power of the Spirit and with the complete and utter certainty that's inherent to it. Those works that you, that you walk in now by virtue of your new reality in Christ, those things are they're all things that He prepared for you the same way that He has all the other parts of your salvation. Are you with me? And so believer, hear me this morning. You should 100,000% be committed to a holy life. <laughs> and you should 100 million thousand. It's not even a number, right? But you get the point. You should just as much believe that it is solely the work of God that provides that to you. Those things go, they, they go hand in hand. They can't be separated. So I want you to, I want you to hold that bat. <laughs> I want you to time that pitcher up. I want you to, to keep your eye on the ball. Get a big old leg kick in there and take the biggest hack at maturity in this life that you possibly can think at. Take a swing at it. I want you to take it seriously. Put time and thought and consideration into your life and godliness. Uh, Tolkien and his characters, their belief and convictions, they showed up in action. It wasn't just in word and sacrament. It, it showed up in action. But don't for a second forget that God is standing right there behind you with His hands over top of yours, giving you the power and strength and ability to grow and be mature in what He has set out for you. It's all God's. <laughs> Every bit of it. Every time you take that swing and you, you hit a home run or you get a base hit, thank God for it. Every time someone compliments you on your maturity or or comments on growth they've seen in some area of your life, don't for a second feel proud of yourself. Look to God and thank Him for that because it was His work. And just keep putting your head down and walking in the things that He's prepared for you. Believer, in much the same vein, right? Every time you're, you're tempted to sulk in some of the struggle of life, remember that it's God who saves and who works His salvation out in you. 
How do you press on in the long defeat of life? By the working out of your faith. Number two, the labor of love. That's the second way through the long defeat of this life. Um, what is their labor of love? Well, I think in a lot of ways it just fills in what Paul means by the work of their faith, right? Um, what, what does a working faith look like? It looks like love. That's the idea here. Um, Paul, he gives several examples of what this love looks like throughout the letter. And, and specifically, as we just touch on a few of them, what I want us to see is, is the self-sacrificing nature of this love that is it, it's concerned with the benefit of others oftentimes to the detriment of self. Much like the characters in Tolkien's story that we mentioned, these people, they're repeatedly acting in the interest of others, even if it's not to their benefit. And again, I think this is one of the main things that we're going we're gonna to see show up throughout the whole book. Um, in verse 5 there, he says, For you know what kind of men we were among you for your benefit. You became imitators of us and of the Lord when in spite of severe persecution, you've seen that, you welcome the message with joy from the Holy Spirit. Idea being there's this kind of um, self-sacrifice involved, right? There's a concern for others demonstrated in the midst of severe persecution, as it says. The defeat of life. Again, in 2.8, um, you don't have to turn, but if you, if you can, just glance there. Similar idea, Paul says that they were, uh, they were pleased to share not only the gospel with them, but their whole lives. And we see more so that this happens in labor and hardship. Chapter 4, verse 9, he says this about brotherly love. You don't need me to write to you because you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. In fact, you're doing this towards all the brothers in the entire region of Macedonia, but we encourage you, brothers, to do even more so. And there he, he's actually going to go into some specifics about kind of how this looks played out um, in, in context. 5.11 Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up as you are already doing. Again, just this similar idea of there is a concern for the good of others. That's what this love looks like. Um, what, what's the relationship between this work of faith and, and the labor of love that's mentioned here? We could, honestly, <laughs> um, we could spend a ton of time just sitting and talking about these three ideas that we're, that we're mentioning this morning, faith, hope, and love, and, and kind of discussing all the ways that they're related to one another. But, but I think just one thing that's very apparent here and throughout is, is that this labor of love, it's one of the main things that the work of faith looks like. Again, we can rely on Paul in some other places here, I think, to see how he talks about these ideas and the importance of love. Um, we mentioned one place already, but 1 Corinthians 13, we kind of know that this is like the love chapter, right? Um, to our detriment, like it's, <laughs> we won't get on that tangent. The love chapter, right? Let me highlight just two verses out of chapter 13. Verse 7. It's talking about love here. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. All very similar wording is what we find in, in our text this morning. Then in verse 13, after briefly mentioning uh, several gifts, he mentions the gifts of prophecy and knowledge and, and all those. He says at some point these will go away, but then in verse 13, but these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. But he says the greatest of these is love. And so there's kind of uh, the idea being a supremacy to these three gifts among others, but then among those three, it is 
love that is said to be the greatest. It's not surprising then when we read through Philippians 1 or 1 Timothy 1 that Paul talks about the goal of our instruction being love. We're to be growing in love as believers of Christ. You'll remember, this is an easy one, Galatians 5, 5 and 6. He says, For through the Spirit, by faith, we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Notice again there, faith, hope, and love. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes, but faith working through love. And so, similar to the characters in Tolkien's story, this is, this is just what our life should look like, right? It may not be the grand acts of the story of, of taking on, you know, hundreds of enemies to save just a few lives, or running into a hopeless battle as a decoy so that others can escape and survive. But maybe it does look like staying nearby the chronically ill. Or spending time with the outcasts. Or giving your time and your resources for that ministry to those with Alzheimer's. Or preparing week in, week out for that one person Bible study. After all, is this not what we have to give the world? As Paul puts it, not just the gospel message, but, but also our whole lives. After all, if the long defeat of life, it, it, if it doesn't lead us to this radical pouring out of ourselves for the good of others, we've missed it. This is so important, friends, this morning, because I feel like, unfortunately, we oftentimes do miss it. The, the pain and the, and the struggles of this life, they lead us to, to withdraw. They cause us to to shrink back instead of lean in and take action. Maybe if we do lean in and act, we're, we're acting on behalf of ourselves, right? We're trying to make life better for ourselves now. We're trying to store up treasures here on earth or create our, our own glory for life now to make life easier. But here's the thing that, that we just completely miss in all of that. You're not the only one living in the long defeat of life. You're not the only one. Paul, despite everything that that man went through, understood that he was not the only one. And we see that much of what he went through was somewhat uh, willingly because it came with this concern for other people and for the gospel going out. This is exactly what he tried to emulate for the Thessalonian church and what we see them now imitating in him. It's what we saw from Christ. We we all recognize that life is hard. Even when life is pretty good, right? Relatively simple. It's still hard. But, But we don't stop and think about what that means for the person next to me. Or maybe for that person over there who who is who is really going through it right now. Friends, if our, if our fighting the long defeat of this life doesn't move us to consider the pain and struggle of others and how we might love them in the midst of it, we've missed it. We've missed what it's all about. May we rather be like, like Tolkien, like his characters, and like Paul and the Thessalonians this morning, who in the midst of circumstances that worked, worked towards their physical and spiritual death every single day, Right? were motivated by their love for other people who prioritized the good of others, even to their own detriment. 
Friends, what we, what we love is on the line. So let us fight for it. That's what the Christian life looks like. That's what the faithful life of, of pressing on in the long defeat of life looks like. It's the work of our faith played out in real time. It looks like love. And so how do you, how do you press on in the long defeat of life? By the labor of your love. Finally, the third thing that we have to help us make it through the long defeat this morning, the third thing that the text gives us for this life is the endurance of hope. The endurance of hope, the idea here, what he's, what he's communicating here is that um, endurance, it comes from the hope that they have in their Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's not that they have hope in their endurance to keep going or to keep pressing on or, or to keep growing. No, it's the other way around. Our, our endurance, our ability to, to keep going, to keep moving forward, to get out of bed each and every day and put our feet on the ground, right? The endurance to keep going comes from the hope that we have. The endurance, it doesn't come from the, the amount of our hope or the consistency of hope. It doesn't come from the tenacity of hope. It comes from the object of hope. Endurance comes from an unwavering look upon Jesus Christ. And specifically what's mentioned here, it's, it's the reality of His second coming. It's a looking forward towards that great day when He comes back and, and makes our salvation complete. Remember the message that was uh, preached to them back in Acts 17, right? It was about the resurrection. It was the fact that, that Jesus, right now, He's alive. <laughs> he is the Messiah, the one who had to die and rise again. It's Jesus. And He really came. He really did die, and He really did rise again. But, but it's not just that Christ has, has died and risen. risen. It, it's also what that means if it's true. Namely, the fact that salvation, it's going to be made complete. Yes, victory has been won through Christ, His death and His resurrection, but one day it's actually going to be realized. Amen? And Paul brings this up later in, in chapter 1, verse 10. Um, he, he talks about how they turn from idols to the, and notice this, the true and living God. <laughs> and they now wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. It, it's this looking forward towards the day of Jesus' return when ultimate salvation is brought down and they're, they're spared from the judgment to come on the enemies of God. We mentioned to start that the, the prayer there in, in chapter 3 at the end of chapter 3, it's somewhat programmatic as well, and, and it has the same ideas in it. We'll read chapter 13. May He make your hearts blameless in holiness before our Lord, before our God and Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all His saints. Again, in chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, then we who are still alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And so we can see again how this idea of looking, looking forward to the coming of the Lord, it's something that Paul, he comes back to repeatedly as a means of encouragement and reminder for the Thessalonian church in the midst of the long defeat of life. The, the article that we read, it talks about the characters and, and their crystal clear version of success at the end of the road, right? They looked ahead with a, with a complete certainty of success. 
And it was because of that look ahead to glory that they acted in faith and love now. That's why that man took on so many enemies all by himself, leading to his death so that two short, stubby little hobbits could survive. That's why the king leads a hopeless battle to spare the lives of others, because there's, there's an even greater hope than success in the here and now. That's why Tolkien wrote the story in the first place. <laughs> because he was, he was convinced, friends, he was absolutely convinced that at the end of it all, even though right this second his body is lying dead, six feet underground, he was convinced that at the end of it all he would reign victorious with Christ. And in this story that he wrote, it was a grand picture of that great reality. And so you, likewise, this morning, keep looking ahead. This is the relationship between the hope and the endurance it gives. And the working out of our faith and love that we've already talked about. If you're, if you're, if you're looking ahead and you're, you're truly convinced that God is sovereign over that, if we're convinced like Tolkien and like Paul and like the Thessalonians that God is, that is sovereign over that great day, that it's really coming, that He holds it in His hands, then He's sovereign over the means now too. If He's sovereign over that day, He's sovereign over this day. But it's always in that order. That's how the long defeat works for God's people. We don't, we don't look to today and decide the future. <laughs> we don't look at today and the and the circumstances or, or the feelings or emotions or direction of life today and determine what hope there is moving forward based on that. No. <laughs> Other way around. We live today in light of that day. And so Christian, as you prepare for that Bible study with the young man or the young woman who just doesn't seem like they're quite getting it. <laughs> Look ahead. As you keep thinking about that little old lady down the street who may just need a, a friendly face to talk with for a few minutes. Look ahead. As you sign up to mow the church lawn week after week. Look ahead. <laughs> I struck a chord there with someone. I know I did. Someone say Amen. In the midst of your fatigue and your discouragement in this life, look ahead. Because the moment that we look down at our place in, in time and history and the, the realities around that, we lose hope. The moment that we look to our right or look to our left and we, we see the sin and brokenness of the world, we lose hope. The moment we look inward, <laughs> if we see the battle of light and dark constantly being waged in our hearts and our souls. We lose hope. But friends, those things are not what the Lord gave us for this life. He didn't give us the circumstances of today or the, the condition of the world or the perfection of our souls to help us make it through this life. So instead, we are to walk in the victory that is so clearly coming your way if you're in Christ this morning. Worship team, you can come up. And friends, even though life is hard now, even though it, it feels like uphill both ways all the time, right? 
Even though our world is in decline and we know that as Christians our life here is just going to be one long defeat after another, we don't live in that defeat. We live in the glimpses of that final victory that are present throughout. The work of our faith, the labor of our love, and the endurance of our hope. We live in those things now. So like Tolkien, when, when Jesus comes to usher in the next age and, and the new Jerusalem descends on earth, we will be found faithful, faithful to the last, experiencing the fruit of the one hope that was always guaranteed, God's reign on earth. We fight the long defeat now because results are not as important as our Father's delight. We fight the long defeat now because we are not authorities over success. We fight the long defeat because the final victory is coming. Let me pray. Father, we are humbled this morning by the truth that When it comes down to it, Lord, everything we have has nothing to do with us. Lord, we want so desperately to hold on to any sense of our ability or our our strength. And Lord, it's just not there. We seek that in vain, Lord. Help us instead to trust in you. Lord, we're not absolved from responsibility, but that's not what we're saying, Lord. What we're asking is that you would work it in us and through us and help us to believe that. Help us to not walk in our own strength and power, but to walk in yours. To walk in the power of your word, in the power of your spirit, and, and, and the certainty that is inherent to that. And Lord, as we, as we walk through the long defeat of life and the struggle Help us to do so with eyes ahead, Lord. Eyes that can see clearly you're you're coming down and you're bringing us up to yourself. Help us to not be discouraged or distracted by the things of the world and the, the, the emotions of our hearts. Help us to live in light of that day, Lord. We pray these things in your name. Amen.